I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus, since I found in him a friend so strong and true. I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. Jesus is the sweetest name I know, and he's just the same as his lovely name. And that's the reason why I love him so. Oh, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. Oh, how well I do remember how I doubted day by day. For I did not know for certain that my sins were washed away. When the Spirit tried to tell me I would not the truth receive, I endeavored to be happy and to make myself believe. But it's real, it's real. Oh, I know it's real. Praise God, the are settled, for I know, I know it's real. My father is omnipotent, and that you can't deny, a God of might and miracles, tis written in the sky. He took a miracle to put the stars in place. He took a miracle to hang the world in space. But when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle of love and grace. Shackled by a heavy burden, neath a load of guilt and shame, then the hand of Jesus touched me. And now I am no longer the same. He touched me, oh, he touched me. And all the joy that floods my soul, something happened. And I know he touched me and made me whole. Sometimes when my faith would sunlight I can see. I just lift mine eyes to Jesus, and I whisper, pilot me. Fear thou 
not all be with thee. I will still thy pilot be. Never mind the tossing billows. Take my hand and trust in me. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home when Jesus is my portion? My constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. For his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. When I, a poor sinner, before the Lord did fall, and in the name of Jesus for pardon loud did call, he heard my supplication, and soon the weak was strong. For Jesus took my burden and left me with a song. Yes, Jesus took my burden, I could no longer bear. Yes, Jesus took my burden in answer to my prayer. My anxious fear subsided, my spirit was made strong. For Jesus took my burden and left me with a song. If the world from you withhold of its silver and its gold, and you have to get along with meager fare, just remember in his word how he feeds the little bird. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Leave it there, leave it there. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. If you trust and never doubt, he will surely bring Father watches over 
I trust in God, I know he cares for me. On mountain bleak or on the stormy sea, though billows roll, he keeps my soul, my heavenly Father. Watches over me. My Lord has garments so wondrous fine and mother texture fills its fragrance reach to this heart of mine. With joy my being thrills Out of the ivory palaces Into a world of woe Only his great of Jesus in the garden where he prayed. They led him through the streets in shame. They spat upon the Savior, so pure from free from sin. They said, crucify him, he's to blame. They could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you. On Calvary's cross there was planted a cross that lifted a man up to shame. But he on the cross was the dear Son of God who died a lost world to reclaim. The Christ of the cross is the theme of my song. The wonderful Christ of the cross. He atonement has made. He my ransom has paid. So I'll praise him, my Christ of the cross. Once sat alone beside the highway begging. His eyes were blind, the light he could not see. He clutched his rags and shivered in the shadows. Then Jesus came and bade his darkness flee. When Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. When Jesus comes, the tears are wiped away. He takes the gloom and fills the life with glory. For his Jesus comes to stay.
like the woman at the well I was seeking for things that could not satisfy. And then I heard my Savior speaking, draw from my well that never shall run dry. Fill my cup, Lord, I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up and make me
so deep, so far. This love is mine, I cannot comprehend it. This love divine, the Christ my Lord divine. When on the tree he died for me, Glorious, wondrous, mighty love. This love is mine. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. How grateful I am to the Lord for talent given of the Lord, dedicated over to the Lord, and used of the Lord in a mighty and a wonderful way. Harry Hampshire has been and is a blessing to this city. Harry Hampshire has been and is a blessing to Chattanooga and we're grateful for his life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thou hast given to us in these moments glorious gospel truths in these wonderful songs and hymns in the testimony of this giant's life. We rejoice, Father, in Harry Hampshire. We rejoice in his Christian devotion, his faithfulness in the witness of the gospel. And Lord, we pray that the truths that he has shared with us in song will find that lodging place in our souls and bear fruit for the kingdom. Lord, thou art in this place, and we thank thee. And we pray now that your spotlight will turn upon our souls and that your truth will lift us to every decision that would honor you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This large bit of paper that I have brought into the pulpit tonight, I would want to share with you at the very onset, is not the outline for the message, just in case. Well, I knew I'd get an amen out of somebody for that. What I happen to have in my hands at this particular moment is a set of plans, a set of blueprints, a number of pages here. been very interesting as I have looked this set of plans over. It happens to be a set of plans that I borrowed just a little while ago. I'll return it to the proper place in your closet, preacher. It's a set of plans for your new activities building. And it's been fascinating to look at it and to realize what's here and the thought that's gone into it and the purpose of it and the lives that are going to be blessed by it. And it's marvelous, and it's wonderful, and it's thrilling when you consider what a set of blueprints happen to be. And that's exactly what this is. And page after page after page did not just jump upon a page. The plans that are here as the fruit of dreaming and planning and work and discipline. How poor life would be if we did not have individuals who were willing to discipline themselves in this matter of the development of plans and blueprints for the adequate provisions of life. And that particular set of plans, plans for a given building, 
plans for an activities building, plans for a building where men and women in the Christian context of recreation, of activity and fellowship can grow close to each other, can grow close to the Lord Jesus Christ, can develop in body and in mind and in spirit. How magnificent when a church accepts the responsibility under God for the development of the entire man. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a community. It's not just one building for one purpose. We are a community concerned with the soul, concerned with the mind, concerned with the body, concerned with fellowship, concerned with every aspect of an individual's life, whether that be the oldest individual in the congregation or the youngest individual in a congregation. We're a family. We're a people of God seeking to know and to do God's will in our given place of responsibility. The particular set of plans that I unrolled and displayed before you is a set of plans not for a country club, not for a skyscraper, not for a doghouse, not for a house, but it's a set of plans for a particular kind of a building designed for a particular purpose as it all fits in to the kingdom of God. And that particular set of plans presupposes some things. That particular set of plans presupposes an architect, an architect who has disciplined his mind and disciplined his hand, an architect who is capable of dreaming dreams, of taking the input of people who have desires for a certain type of building and a certain layout, and then able to translate the dream into something that is tangible. That particular set of plans also presupposes a builder. For no set of plans is worth very much without a builder. A builder who is capable of working together, of coordinating all of the many things that must be involved in the creation of a building. But a set of plans presupposes something else. Not only an architect to dream the dream and put it on paper, not only a builder to enter into a contract to bring together all the resources, but it also presupposes materials, building materials. There was a time when the building in which we gather tonight was merely somebody's dream. It was translated from that stage of dream into blueprint. The architect translating the dream into the plans. The plans were put out. The builder selected. And the builder then brought the materials together. And in the various disciplines of the different trades, it all began to work out. The bulldozers moved out and cleared away the stand of timber that was at this place. The various subcontractors for the buildings began to come and to deliver the materials to the site. The pilings began to go down. The foundation work was put into place. The concrete poured. The concrete blocks arrived on the scene. The carpenters worked. And little by little, all of it went together the plumbing, the electrical work, the lights were hung, the air condition installed in place, the furniture arrived, the carpet was put down, the organ was put in its place, the piano over here, the pulpit at last. The moment came. Why? And a building that had, been, that had started with a dream had moved to that climax of that first service. And what a glorious hour that must have been for you when you moved into that first hour. And what a blessing it has been in the kingdom of God 
as from day to day God has given you health and given you life and let you come and gather in this place where the gospel is preached and the gospel is sung and the Holy Spirit of God moves and you have made decisions that have brought you close to the Lord Jesus Christ. How wonderful it is in the disciplines of life that we can move from the dream to the fulfillment. I hold in my hand another set of blueprints. This also is the product of an architect's dream, the Bible. This book of books, this magnificent book different from any other book in all of the history of the world. If it were possible for us to gather on your nearly 22 acres on this corner and this choice spot of the globe, one single copy of every single book that has ever been written in any language, in any age, in any civilization, any place in all the history of the world, going back to the clay tablets of the ancient libraries, going back to the papyrus rolls of the ancient Middle East world, going back to the earliest handwritten manuscripts, going back to a single copy of every book that has ever been printed, rolling off our presses at an unprecedented rate even today. If we were to gather on these 22 acres a copy of every book that had ever been written in the history of the world except the Bible, we would be a people poor. We might study the Upanishads of the Indian religions or the Koran of the Mohammedans or the holy sayings and the writings of Confucius or those sacred scrolls of the Shinto. We might gather whatever has been written in the name of religion in all the history of the world and try to discover God's truth out of them and try to build lives upon them. But we would be poor if we did not have the word of God. But by contrast, being empty of all the vast books that have ever been written and published if we have the Bible and if we read the Bible and if we know the Bible and if we love the Bible and if we will let the Bible become implanted in our hearts and lives and let it be for us what God wants it to be for us not an idol at which we worship. For the Bible is not a book to be worshipped. It is a set of blueprints that God, the great dreamer, has given to us whereby we can build lives, our lives. Jesus wants us to have full lives and rich lives. Jesus wants us to get the most out of life. And Jesus, the central thought of this book, Jesus is on the first page of it. Jesus is on the last page of it. There's no parable told. There's no story about it. There's no historic event. There is no accounting of anything of all the Word of God that does not include the Lord Jesus. From the very beginning to the end of it, it all speaks of Jesus. This is a plan for every life. And success in life depends upon our knowledge of God's blueprint. You can't be ignorant of the Word of God and have fellowship with God. One of the compelling reasons, one of the major reasons that compelled me under the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God to lead our people into the development of a school at Brainerd Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee was the absolute need on the part of boys and girls to be able to read. What a tragedy in this day when only 13% across America two years ago of all high school graduates, only 13% were able to read at even a fifth grade level. And that was the high watermark. 
Under God, we cannot produce and train Christian soldiers for the kingdom of God going out, doing battle for the Savior, ignorant of God's word. And if you can't read it, you're ignorant of it. We must read the word of God. We must know the plans. I have had occasion to know in some instances when plans have been drawn for a particular kind of a building and a contract has been let to a given builder to build. The specifications have been exact. Certain kinds of materials to go in certain parts of the building. But the contractor has scheduled other kinds of materials, inferior materials. He has substituted. He has changed that that the specification called for. And I witnessed the collapse of a building that had already risen to some height of 14 floors. And there was a collapse of that building during the construction time. And the examination revealed that the contractor was pouring an inferior grade cement than that which the architect had called for and that which the, the buyer had specified. And the building collapsed. Good buildings are built when the plans are known and when the plans are followed and when the specifications are met and when the building materials that go in are right and they're proper and they're sound. And if that is true for the building in which we are worshiping this night, under God, it is more so true for your life. You cannot build a life that will bring joy and victory and happiness and success and accomplishment, a life that is worthwhile, a life that will cast a shadow, a life that will be a blessing and a benediction to others if you are ignorant of the plans and if you skimp on the materials and if you try to put your own wishes and your own ways into it. You folks would not stand for it a moment if according to the plans that I just held up, the plans that were let out for bid, and the contractor, and you suddenly discovered over here that the contractor in going over the plan said, I don't believe I like these plans for the restrooms. I'm just going to leave them out. Or I'm going to stick them around over here. Somebody along the way would come along and say, wait a minute, brother. That's not what the plans call for. And along the way, you see, you and I get into this business with God. We who are called upon to be the builders of our own lives with the materials that God will make available to us if by faith we will reach out and get them. How many times do, do we get into an argument with God when God says this is the way to build, this is the way to do it, this is the way to go, but you say, uh-uh, no, let's do it my way. I don't want to build it, Lord. I don't want to build my life the way you want it built. I don't want to handle things the way you want it handled. I think my plans are as good as yours, God. I think my set of specifications just as good as yours, God. Stay out of my way. Leave me alone. How do I know that? Well, I know that because we've just gone through an every member canvas. Our pledge campaign, our budget year starts March the 1st in our church. And I happen to know that about 70%, 69.9, right at 70% of our people had underwritten that which we would seek to do as a people for God. When I look at that thing, I saw that about 26%, Brother Harry, 25.9%, 26% of the people who are committed fellow members of our body of baptized believers, committed to carry on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, dedicated to the carrying out of the Great Commission in the city of Chattanooga, this, of this body of baptized believers known as Brainerd Baptist Church, only about 25% said to God, I take you at your word when you talk about the tithe, God. What's 75% of my members over there saying? 
They're saying God doesn't know what he's talking about. God's trying to fool me when he says, give me that which is mine in an act of faith, in the devotion, in the determination of your life. Bring the tithe, all of the tithe, into the storehouse that there might be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord, that if you'll not do this, I'll open up the very windows of heaven for you and I'll pour out blessings that'll be so great you'll not be able to receive it. But 75% of my people have called God a liar. And I dare say some of you, the same God who wrote that over in Malachi is the same God who said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Same God, same truth. When you try to live your financial life separate from the way that God lives, you're just arguing with God. You're just saying, well, God, you may be writing about this matter of salvation, and I thank you all that you want to give me, but when it comes to my money, I can't trust you. I just don't believe I can get along, Lord, with, with uh, just the other nine-tenths. I just don't believe, Lord, that you're capable of making good on your promise to me. Regardless of the thousands of tithing testimonies that we have heard from others who know the validity of it, that God keeps his promise. And yet we try to build our financial houses, calling God a liar and thinking ourselves to be experts in the field. And there are some of you, bless your hearts, there are some of you who've been members of this church for years and years and years and years, and you're still just tipping God. You're flipping him a quarter because you've sold yourself on a bill of goods all these years that God didn't know what he's talking about financially. And you've robbed yourself of some blessings. Oh, how you have. Now, this church doesn't need your money nearly as much as you need to be right with God financially. And God speaks some pretty straight words to us. Will a man rob God? Oh, said, you've robbed me. You're a thief in tithes. I speak this as your spiritual friend. Are you having troubles financially? Are there difficulties? You're a rare bird if you're not having some kind of troubles. And usually it's just a matter of degree. We see these fellows who fly their private jets and have their offices up in the 50th floor of some executive suite and live on palatial grounds in a magnificent mansion. We say, boy, if I just had that, if that was just the way it was, it'd be all right, all the problems would be solved. Well, he just owes more money than you do. That's about all. The key to financial success in life is to listen to what God has had to say, to look at God's blueprints and the best financial advice, the best economic advice that I can give to any one of you is just believe God. Just take God at his word. If 100% of my folks who give something to the Lord would give what that 25% have committed themselves to give in this brand new year, there'd be something over $1 million that would be for the glory of God Oh, how God could bless the people who are involved in it. God's financial plans for your life. And I want to tell you something. And it isn't Ralph McIntyre because my word doesn't mean a thing. Come Monday, the Lord willing and Delta Airline flying, I'm going to be flying out of here. You may never see me again. I may never see you again this side of heaven. That is all of us who are Christians. But I want to tell you something. If you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, if you are a member of this congregation, you could look back to this Friday night and this glorious moment when Harry Hampshire sung so very beautifully and this very time when you would say to God as an act of faith, I'll believe, God, what you're saying to me about this matter of money. And it could become a turning point in your life, in your relationship to God. You get right with God about this matter of your pocketbook. It's amazing how many other things can get right. 
their plans, the successful use of a set of plans means we have to have a knowledge of those plans. We have to execute those plans, and there has to be a desire for it. You know the Bible. You know it well. You know how God himself has acted as an architect. Why, over here, right at the very start of this whole thing in the sixth chapter of Genesis, where God said, uh, make thee an ark, make an ark of gopher wood, rooms shalt thou make uh, in the ark, and you'll pitch it within and without with pitch, and this is the manner that thou shalt make it, the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits, a window shalt thou make the ark, and a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof with lower and second and third stories shalt thou make it. Now, do you know what that says to me? That says to me that the God of this universe, who is the power of this universe, who always has been, who is now and always will be, God is just as interested with the little things as he is at the big things. See? Now, Mr. Noah, receiving the architectural set of plans from God concerning the size and the materials of the ark, Mr. Noah could have said, Sir, the thing will never float. I think we'd better change it, make it a little longer, Make it a little higher, make it a little wider. I think we ought to change this thing, God. Let's, let's build it according to my plans, not according to your plans. And if Mr. Noah had tried to build the ark according to his plans instead of according to God's plans, well, you wouldn't even know about Mr. Noah. He'd have been down the bottom somewhere. It was because he built it according to God's plans. God is interested in details. God's interested in the details of your life. He's interested in the length of your life. He's interested in the heights of your life. He's interested in the doors that let things in and out of your life. You see, he's interested. And God is a divine architect, and he cares, and he is concerned. And just as God gave the divine plans here for this, he gave it for a purpose, so that there would be success in the mission that is at this one point. The remnant of man that he had made would continue on into the newness of a world that would be purged by the floods. God was also the architect for the tabernacle in the wilderness. God was also the architect for the temple that stood on Mount Moriah there in Jerusalem's hill. God is an architect. God is concerned about details. God knows how to draw the line out straight. God knows how to put this and that and the other exactly in its place. And when it comes to life, God has given us the blueprint for how to live life, how to find life, and how to make life really exciting. And that's what he wants it to be for you, exciting, something of an adventure, and to know the thrill of it all. And God has given us, oh, how clear and wonderful and plain it is, right over here in his word, God has said to us, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the paycheck, the payday, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus said, Believe on me, and thou shalt be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That glorious, marvelous promise given by the Lord Jesus, he that believeth on the Son hath life. You see, that's the way. If you believe in your heart and you make confession with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that God brought him out of the dead, the Bible says thou shalt be saved. That's the way it is. That's the blueprint for it. And in the house of salvation... You see, don't go out and try to build a shack on somebody else's plans. Why go out and try to build a doghouse called salvation when God's already building a mansion for you? That's what Jesus said in the 14th chapter of John's Gospel, speaking to his disciples, trying to get them ready for that agony when they would see him there crucified upon the cross. Jesus said, now listen, fellas, 
you're going to see some things you're not really going to believe. It's going to bring you down. It's going to break your heart. It's going to crush your spirit. Now listen, fellas. When you see these things come to pass, don't you let your heart be troubled. Don't you get out of fellowship with God. Don't you get down so deep in the valley of despair that people would have occasion to point their finger at you, fellas, and, and say, ha, oh, look how mistaken they were. Jesus said, now, don't you let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. You believe also in me. Regardless of what you may see, regardless of the darkness of the hour, or the earthquake that happens, you see me hanging on the cross. You believe in me. And then he said, in my Father's house are many mansions. Mansions. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Oh, thank God. Thank God that the nail-pierced hands of Jesus and the preparation of the glorious home over there He's not building any dog houses for you, Christian mother, Christian dad. And the loved ones in Christ who've left us and gone on for a little while, we'll meet them on the other side in a mansion yonder. Far more wonderful than any of the beautiful mansions I've seen in these brief days at Savannah. And you have some beautiful things that stir up the memories of the past and the glories of an affluent time and affluent age. But oh, my stars, the finest mansion in this county is nothing compared to the mansion that Jesus has for you. Jesus. So don't cheat yourself. Don't try to get to heaven by yourself. Don't try to balance the scales. Don't put God as some kind of a divine bookkeeper keeping track of the good little things over here and the bad little things over here and hoping somehow they'll weigh out. Oh, that's not the way. For Jesus said, I am the way and I'm the truth and I'm the life and no man cometh unto the Father and into the glories and the wonder and the joy and the happiness of those mansions prepared up there except by me. So you see, if you try to become the architect of your own salvation, well, it just won't work. It just won't work. Because, you see, you don't have any kind of authority to draw the plans for the mansion up there, but Jesus does. So here's where we love Jesus, and here's where we turn it over to Jesus, and here's where we trust Jesus, and we say, thank you, Jesus, you've drawn the plans. Thank you, Jesus, that you've given us the plans. Thank you, O Holy Spirit of God, that you inspired men to write that we might know. Thank you that you inspired men to keep and to preserve the Bible and to translate it and to bring it down to us so that we might know the plans. Thank you, Lord, that you've told us the kind of building materials that go into it. And oh, the building materials of the mansion in the sky, you know what the main material is? The cross, timber from a cross on which he died. Build a life. When you accept his plans for the building of salvation's house, then build a Christian life. Make your life different from the life of the person who lives next door that's not a Christian. If there is no difference, you need to examine what you call your Christianity. If you don't think any differently from the people in your block who are not Christians about what ought to happen in this community or what ought to happen in the churches or what ought to happen for God, if you don't think any differently, if you make your decisions on exactly the same basis as people who are not Christian, then listen to me. Sincerely, I say to you, you better examine what you call Christianity, your Christianity. See? For having been born into the kingdom of God, we are new creatures. 
We began to think in different ways. We began to behave in a different way. We're moving in a different direction. We move in a different circle of friends. And it's rather obvious, you see, once we began living in Christian's house, then we began to live and act and talk like Christians. Are you a Christian? When did you become a Christian? When was the moment when you opened your heart knowing that Jesus loved you more than anybody else in all the world loved you? And you were sorry for those sins that caused him to have to die. And you opened your heart and received him. What a magnificent moment it was in your life. I was 10 when Jesus came into my heart. And the Christian house that I've tried to build for him has gotten pretty lopsided at times. I've tried to build some rooms on And Jesus has not been the architect. And do you know something? When I've tried to live in those rooms that I drew the plans for in my life, I just didn't know anything but misery. I shared with your pastor the other day. When he asked me the question, he said, how in the world did you get up to Vanderbilt? That's a pretty good question to ask a Baptist preacher. And the reason that I got up to Vanderbilt was that I'd started my college life after I was in the Navy about four years. I started my college life at a little tiny Baptist college in Jackson, Tennessee. Committed to the will of the Lord, called of God to be a preacher. But the devil got hold of me. And I got out of the will of God. And I closed the Bible. And though I was the pastor, student pastor, of one of the finest little churches in West Tennessee, when I rode the old rebel train back from Rutherford to Jackson one Sunday night late, I said to myself, I'm through with it. I've had it. And I quit that church and I quit the ministry, and I quit God, and I quit that school. I said, this isn't for me. And I transferred over to Vanderbilt. And I tried to build uh, some rooms onto my life over there, completely out of the will of God. And oh, how God whipped me. And how miserable. And I want to say something to you young people here. God forgave me when finally brought me around. When I claimed that promise, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, God made that promise true to me when he whipped me and brought me back to the house that he had planned for me out of his word.
But I want to tell you, young people, something. You can't play with God, and you can't play with God's Word, and you can't violate His Word, and you can't go off half-cocked and go down the wrong trail. Even though you have the forgiveness of God and know the love of God, without paying a price for it. And in some ways, I'm still paying the price for that disobedience nearly a quarter of a century ago.